not just stories. That's the uh, theme of the youth retreat. That's our theme this morning as well. We're turning in our Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. What, what are you looking at me for? Frankie, are you doing, you're doing something. Oh, okay. I'm watching you. I am watching you. Um, so anyway, we're in 1 Samuel uh, 15, and this is a story about King Saul. But how many of you know what we're reading, what we're studying, is not just a story because it's God's word to us, and therefore it has life, it has purpose, it has power for us today. Amen? We've all heard that story about the mother that disciplined the child and told him to sit down and have time out, and, and he, he thinks to himself, and all of a sudden he blurts out to his mother, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Well, it reminds me of a cute little story about a mother who was uh, working with her little daughter, her six-year-old uh, daughter, Lori, who was in Sunday school trying to remember a memory verse from this chapter, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And she just had the hardest time memorizing that verse. A couple days later, mom heard little Lori talking to her little younger sister that was only three years old, and she said to Katie, Katie, you better obey or you're going to be sacrificed. <laughs> now, that really isn't too far off because we're going to find today that disobedience to God's commands is going to cause huge consequences in King Saul's life. He sacrifices his entire kingdom. He sacrificed his close relationship with Samuel the prophet that, that will break and he will never see him again after this chapter. And he even sacrificed his own personal relationship with God. You see, disobedience always promises us something, doesn't it? If we disobey, there's that promise. Oh, if you do this, if you can disobey, this is what you're going to get. But it always comes at a great, great severe cost. So we're looking at, at Saul's life today. And we want to take the opportunity to really examine our hearts and our lives as we study God's word this morning. Because we want to break that Saul cycle that we heard about last week that he embodies. We don't want to go through the Saul cycle. And so let's pray. Lord, would you awaken us to our own sin? Lord, we want to break the Saul cycle. We want to break those things that bind us, those things that keep tripping us up, those issues, Lord, that are impeding our relationship with you. Lord, help us to learn. Help us to submit and surrender to you. Lord, give us obedient hearts. Lord, awaken. Awaken our heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We begin with the assignment in verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now notice, it wasn't Saul's idea to become king. Whose idea was it? God's idea, right? It wasn't Saul's idea to go and slay the Amalekites. Whose idea was it? It was God's idea. But in order to fully understand what's taking place here and what, why this is happening, look in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says this in verses 17 through 19. God is speaking, remember Amalek, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore, God is saying, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you and to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. You shall not forget. The Amalekites were cruel and evil, wicked enemy that, that didn't fear God. And they first... They were the first nation and the first peoples to attack Israel as they were fleeing out of Egypt. So here they were fleeing from Pharaoh, fleeing from Egypt, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and the Amalekites came, and what they did was they just waited for those that kind of straggled behind that multitude, that mass in the wilderness, and all the ones that were weak or tired or sickly and struggling to progress on with the group, they would pick them off. And they were just so evil and cruel to Israel. God had given the Amalekites 200 years to repent of their sin and their deeds to Israel, but they didn't. But also something else is going on here. There's an allegory. There's a representation here for you and I to understand. Because Amalek in scripture really refers to our old nature. It's a type or a symbol of our old nature or of our flesh or carnal ways. And it's interesting that the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. Remember who Esau was, Jacob's son? He was the one that was carnal. He was carnally minded. He despised the promise, the blessing of God. Why? Because he was only concerned about his flesh. He, want, he, he sold his birthright for a a pot of soup, if you will. He was a man after the flesh. So this war with Amalek also typifies our war with our flesh, that carnal nature. And this is the way the enemy battles with us, isn't it? He battles with us and gives us temptation. He strikes at us in our lives at those areas that are weak, those areas where we're struggling and we're falling behind. And that's where the enemy of our soul comes, and he's always trying to pick us off there. I like what Romans 12, 14 says. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision 
for the flesh. You see, we may think that it's harsh for God to destroy all the Amalekites, but God has reasons that extend further than our wisdom that we can think. You see, it's interesting. There's many examples, but one example is the book of Esther. If you've read the book of Esther lately, you remember that drama and how that, that wicked Haman had devised a plot to kill and exterminate all the Jews in the entire kingdom of, Har of Ahasuer, Ahar I'll forget his name, the king, and, <laughs> and it, the Persian kingdom. So he's, he's wanting to kill all the Jews on a specific day, and he has devised this wicked plan to exterminate the entire Jewish race. Hitler was not the first one that wanted to do that. Haman wanted to do that. Well, it's interesting. Haman is actually a descendant of the Amalekites. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And also, we're going to find in 2 Samuel, as we continue in our series, that, that an Amalekite is actually the one that strikes the death blow to King Saul himself. Wow. So often, the way that God judges nations is he will use one nation against another nation. It's, it's in the Bible, we see that God actually will use a nation to come against another nation in order to bring judgment against them for their sins because God holds nations accountable for their actions. And that's what was happening here. Verse 4, so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Verse 6, then Saul said to the Canaanites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they come up, came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. So this was an act of mercy toward the Canaanites. Now the Canaanites were actually descendants of Jethro. You remember him? He was Moses's father-in-law. And they, instead of attacking the Israelites when they were vulnerable, they actually showed kindness to them. And so uh, Saul is telling them, get away, separate yourself from these people because we're going to attack them. Verse 7, so Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah uh, all the way to Sur, which is east of Egypt. Up until this point in the text, Saul has obeyed the Lord fully. But it goes downhill from here. Verse 8. And so he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So how would this appear to the other nations around Israel? How would it appear to them that the Israelites went in and killed all the Amalekites and plundered the best of their goods? It would be as if they were attempting to profit from the Amalekites. It would be an evil act instead of God's judgment against them. You see, God had specifically laid out the process that they were to bring attacks against the Amalekites because it was a judgment. It was a holy act, and God did not want the Israelites to profit 
from this act at all. But Saul believes in what we want to call selective obedience, where, where you're just going to partially obey. You're going to pick and choose what he wants to obey. I did most of what you asked me to do. I did almost everything what you asked, God. I've obeyed almost fully your commandment. Unfortunately, you and I do this all too often as well where we'll obey nine out of the ten, you know, commandments. We'll obey this, and then we think we can get by with surrendering this area of disobedience. And that's what Paul, uh, Saul is doing as well. So he starts excusing and blaming others for his problems. Verse 10, now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me. Notice his disobedience caused him to literally, in God's eyes, turn back from following me, even though Saul thought he was following God, and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord, look at this, all night. Samuel is in prayer all night crying out to the Lord. So what does it mean when God says, I regret, I greatly regret that I may call Saul king? Didn't God know what was going to happen beforehand? Well, when God says these things in the scripture, and this happens oftentimes, he's speaking in human terms. It's an anthropomorphism when God is kind of taking our human understanding of language and emotions, and he's putting it in that expression so that you and I can kind of understand him a little bit. But that doesn't mean God is a man like you and I and has feelings like us. But he is speaking to us in terms that we can understand. But notice Samuel's response. He cries out to the Lord all night long. Not only did people think that Saul was going to make a great king, Samuel also thought Saul would make a great king. And Samuel, I believe, really loved Saul. I think he loved him as a person, and he really had high hopes for him. And so his heart is broken. Samuel is literally brokenhearted for Saul. Now, Let's look at the next verse and see what Saul's up to while Samuel's crying all night long over his sin. Verse 12. So when Samuel arose early in the morning and met Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. So Saul sets up a monument to himself, and it would be humorous, if it weren't so sadly true. He should have erected a monument to God, but Saul is erecting a monument to himself. And get this, when he is being disobedient to the Lord. Do you know there's only one other person in the entire Bible that set up a monument to himself? And that was Absalom, King David's rebellious son. Only other person. And so notice what Saul is doing here. And then when Saul and Samuel meet, Saul is going to bless Samuel again and just patronize him, 
thinking he's done absolutely nothing wrong. Verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. So this verse gives us an indication of a very clear understanding of Saul's relationship with God. Did you notice it there in the last verse, verse 15? Samuel, he says, he wants, Samuel, he tells him, he says, I want to sacrifice these animals to the Lord your God. Not to the Lord our God, not to the Lord my God. I want to sacrifice these animals to the Lord your God. And it's not just a slip of the tongue because three times in this chapter, Saul refers to the Lord your God. Never once does he ever refer personally to the Lord his God. Wow. Somehow, Saul thinks that the laws and the commandments of God just don't fully apply to him. After all, he is the king, right? It's interesting because many people in our nation today have this same Saul syndrome, this mindset that somehow they think that, that God's laws and commandments don't apply to them. I don't believe in God, and I don't believe in his commandments, so I don't have to obey the commandments of God. And so somehow they think they can be exempt from God's commandments. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. We can't disobey God or his commandments and think we will reap anything but the tragic consequences. God considers obedience central to our relationship with him. Look at some of these verses with me. Deuteronomy 11, verse 26 through 28. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse, God says. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Exodus chapter 15 verse 26 and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on on you which I have brought upon the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. God gives us promises of blessing when we obey him and yet when we disobey him we know there are tragic consequences. Then Jesus steps it up kind of another notch in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John verses 14 verse chapter 14 verse 15 it says <clears throat> 
Jesus declares, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, if you say you love me, if you truly love me, keep my commandments. That's the test of our love, it seems. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, it says, for this is the love of God. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So we keep them joyfully, not, not grudgingly or with a burden or a heavy heart or unwillingness, but joyfully wanting to obey God's plan, commandments is, is all part of loving God and, and enjoying the love of God. You see, obedience is literally at the very heart of our relationship with God. Let me say that again. Obedience is at the very heart of our relationship with God. We cannot have a healthy relationship with Jesus if we persist with a disobedient heart. You won't have a healthy relationship with Jesus if you persist with a disobedient heart. So what do we do if we have disobeyed God and we have broken his commandments? We know we've done wrong. What do we do? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what God wants. But Saul never truly confesses his sin. He never does what he needs to do to be right back in a right relationship with God. So let's continue as we read in verse 15. <clears throat> and Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Now that was the commandment of God in the very beginning, right? Utterly destroy everything from the Amalekites. To utterly destroy in the Hebrew literally means to make accursed, to consecrate fully to destruction as a religious act. So God was saying all of their possessions, all that they have is accursed. It has a curse on it. You don't want it. You want to destroy that. You want to get it away from you, forsake it. And your destruction of all those things is part of your consecration as a religious act unto me. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things 
which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So verse 17 we see identifies the root of Saul's sin. It's pride, isn't it? And that really is the root of most all of our sin. At the root of it is pride. In verse 20, Saul says that he has utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Utterly destroyed them. But it's not true because in just a couple of chapters away from here, chapter 27 and chapter 30 in this same book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see David has to fight the Amalekites. So they were not utterly destroyed. He did not obey the voice of the Lord. Instead, he is saying those bad soldiers over there, those people, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, but I have done everything according to the word of the Lord. It's not true. Saul is still rationalizing, and he's trying to shift the blame to the people. A lot of people do that, you know. They rationalize their disobedience. We rationalize our sin, and then we try to shift the blame to other people. Instead of taking responsibility for our own actions and our own sinfulness. Well, it was my parents, or it was the children, or it was this person, or that person, or this circumstance in my life. It was this problem, and I had to do this. We blame and rationalize away our own disobedience, just as, as Saul did. In James chapter 4, verse 6 says this, But God gives more grace. Therefore, he said, it says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we would just humble ourselves, verse 10, it says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Instead of rationalizing and blaming others for our own sin, if we would just but humble ourselves before God, God says, if you humble yourself before me, I'll receive you, I'll forgive you, and I will lift you up and deliver you and set you free from these things. Why do we so often want to somehow excuse our sin, just as Paul did. So now we come to this rebuke from Samuel. In verse 22, it says, Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as obeying, as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion... This is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So what are the sacrifices that God requires? Well, we know one sacrifice is a heart that is broken over sin. That's a sacrifice that God requires. In Psalm chapter 51, verses 16 and 17, it declares this, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. No wonder David was a man after God's own heart. He understood the heart of God. You don't want sacrifices from me. What you want is my heart broken 
over my own sin. That's, that's the sacrifice that you desire, God. Another sacrifice that God desires is found in Romans chapter 12. He desires our bodies and our minds to be surrendered completely to his will. It says in Romans 12 verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. So our bodies now become a living sacrifice unto the Lord. That's the sacrifice that God wants. He wants a broken heart over our sins, and he wants a willing, living body that's willing to, to move at the impulse at his will. True worship is a surrender of our will to Christ's service. True worship is a surrender of our will to Christ's service. It's not singing songs here on Sunday morning. That is singing. Worship is a heart that is surrendered to the Lord and serving him wholly. Obedience is critical to biblical Christianity. It's critical. We so easily call Jesus our friend, don't we? In John chapter 15, 14, he said, you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you. We want Jesus to be our friend. We can't be living disobedient to his commands and expect that we truly are a friend of Jesus. <clears throat> our obedience to God and his commands reflects our inner commitment and love for Jesus. There's a lot of talk right now about revival in Kentucky. Do we want revival here? Do we want revival in our own lives? Do we really, are we willing to do what it takes to be ready for the Spirit of God to move on our hearts and lives in a powerful and holy and fresh new way? Those are important questions. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So Samuel equates rebellion to witchcraft and stubbornness to idolatry. So what is witchcraft? When we think of witchcraft, what do we think? We think of a woman with a black pointy hat, don't we? And then we've, been, we've heard that there's something called black witchcraft or black magic and white witchcraft or white magic. But you know, they're both the same. Just one's a different color than the other. Witchcraft, whether black or white, in its essence, witchcraft is one person usurping their will over another. That's why they make potions and do incantations. They have little dolls they stick needles in. They're trying to usurp their will over that of another person. That's 
That's witchcraft. So rebellion is, is when we are usurping our will over another. Saul is usurping his will over the Lord's will. He's saying, not thy will, but my will be done. That is witchcraft. That, that rebellion is witchcraft. And that really goes back to the original sin, doesn't it? It says, I want to be, be God over my life. I don't want you to be God over my life. I want to be God and not you. That's witchcraft. Stubbornness is, is, is as idolatry. Let's look at that a little bit. The word stubbornness means to press or to urge one's view over another. When we're stubborn, we are set in our position and we are pressing or we're urging our view against that of any other that would contradict. It seeks to intimidate. It causes the fear of man. So it is idolatry, according to God's will, because we are turning our will into a God above the will of God. So we are stubbornly pressing our will, saying, no, I am not going to change. I will not resist. I will not acknowledge my wrongdoing against the Holy Spirit that is speaking to the contrary to our hearts and our lives. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I might worship the Lord. So Saul says he repented, but he doesn't really repent. That's the odd thing about Saul. He just gets so close to, so often through the, the chapters that we've been reading. He gets close, but he just doesn't want to cross over the line. Oh, God, help us not to do the Saul syndrome. So Saul says right away again that he feared the people. I wonder how many times you and I sin because we, we fear people. God presses us to do something. God presses us to go somewhere or do something that he wants us to do or say something. And we fear the reaction. We fear and we feel like it doesn't make sense. I'm going to look stupid. It, it doesn't, doesn't set well. We're always fearing others above what the Lord is speaking and pressing and putting on our hearts. Here Saul says that he has sinned because he feared people, and right away, look what he wants to do. He is wanting Samuel to stay with him because he's afraid of what the people will think. He's like, I sinned, I feared the people. Now I'm still feeling fearing the people, and you come along with me in this charade. Look at this in verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And shall also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. 
Please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, don't let me look bad. I'm fearful of them, he's saying. And return with me that I might worship the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Notice again, verse 30, worship the Lord your God. I believe that's number three for this chapter. Sam, or Saul has once again, he's more concerned with what the people are going to think. Look, I'm the king, and if you don't come back with me, they're going to think something's wrong, and I'm going to lose respect, and I need their respect. After all, I am the king. He's more concerned of what the people are thinking of him than what God thinks. That's the amazing thing in this chapter. He is so concerned about what the reaction of the people are, is, is going to be concerning what he's done and what's happening. He's not concerned about what God is thinking and what God is, is broken in his heart over his sin. It's interesting because Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and, and instruction. And how often we do the same thing. We're concerned about but what people are going to think about this consequence out here when what we should be thinking about isn't the this so much as the this consequence up here. What's going to happen to my relationship and my joy and my peace with, with God when I sin? Instead, we look this way. His public image is more important than the prophecy of the Lord. So Saul teaches us things, and he teaches us from God's perspective, from God's perspective, what we see in this chapter, partial obedience is the same as total obedience. God doesn't ever give him credit for his partial obedience. What God says is, you didn't fully obey me, it's you disobeyed. Partial obedience is the same as total obedience to God. Let's look at the tragic end here. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag come to, came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made children women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Samuel shows us something, how sometimes it's really difficult to be obedient to the Lord. I mean, when I read that, those verses, I wouldn't want to be Samuel. Would you want to do this? Samuel is not a warrior. Samuel's never been in a battle that we know of. It's never, we never see in any scripture that Samuel has ever gone to battle. And yet, here Samuel is so righteously filled with passionate love for God and what has gone on that he literally takes the sword and hacks Agag into pieces. Verse 33 tells us something a little bit more about Agag. He's not so lily white. He's not so innocent. He's not so kind. He was a cruel and wicked king. These were the very sins that God was bringing judgment upon him and his nation for because they were so cruel and wicked in the things that they had done to others, not just to Israel, but to others. So once again, remember... 
for our purposes, Agag and the Amalekites represent the flesh in our own lives. Now look what's happening. I'm sure that Saul thought, because he's captured Agag, the king, that he's not a threat to him anymore. We've got him. We've captured him. We've disarmed him. He's bound in chains. We've got him all tied up. And not only that, I'm sure that Agag probably was negotiating a deal and bartering for his life with King Saul in exchange for letting him live. And this is exactly what our flesh continually wants to do with us. Make a deal with us. Hey, keep me in change. You've got victory over me. You're in charge now. I'm all bound up. I'm chained. Don't kill me, though. Don't put the death blow to me. Don't sever me off. Leave me alive just for a little bit. Let me, let me just stay here and live bound up in chains in the corner, and I'll, I'll leave you alone. I'll, I won't do any harm now. I'm helpless. I'm weak. That's what our flesh wants to tell us. I can't do much harm to you now. But we must be complete in our obedience in order to rid ourselves of the enemies of our spiritual lives in order to fully obey God and put the old life and the things of the flesh to death. Verse 34, then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the king regretted that he had made Saul or the, and he regretted rather that he had made Saul king over Israel. These two cities, Samuel city and Saul city, they're only 10 miles apart. But Saul never sees Samuel again ever. In conclusion, as the worship team comes forward, what does God want more than obedience? We've talked a lot about obedience today. What does God desire more than obedience from us? We find it in Mark chapter 12 from the words of Jesus, verse 29 through 31. Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That word first, the first and the greatest commandment, first means foremost, foremost in time, in place, in order, in importance. It is the beginning, and it's the best. Loving God first or foremost, that is what God wants. He wants to be foremost for all time and in every place that we love him with our all. So what does God want more than even obedience from us? He wants love. Why? Because he knows if we love him, then we will obey him. If he has our love, he gets our obedience anyway. But we can obey God without really loving him. Love motivates us to obedience. 
So what I'd like to do now as we close, and this is the most important part of the service this morning, is I'd like you to sit. And I'd like you to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to your life today. Oh, Holy Spirit, what are you, what are you asking each one of us? What are we not willing to fully be obedient to you in? Is there anything in our lives that you would be saying that you want us to, to surrender? Anything you want us to do that we haven't been fully obeying you? Maybe there's occultic items that we have in our house. Maybe there's drugs that we have stashed that nobody else knows about or pornography. Lord, what do you want us to do with those things? Those secret, hidden things. Books that are unpleasing to you. Is there anything on our phones, Lord? that you're not pleased with. You see all things. You know all things. They're, they're not hidden from you. We can hide them from everyone else, but we can't hide these things from you, Lord. Perhaps in our heart, there's bitterness. There are grudges that we've held, and you're saying, let go. Release that rid of that is there a stubbornness that we have have you been saying to us you're stubborn in this area or an anger or hatred in our hearts Lord what is it that we've been holding on to and pressing into so hard that we've been unwilling to let it go and to fully surrender to you. We're not acting out fully in these things. We've postponed it for a long time, but Lord, you're saying you want us to completely release it, completely strike the death blow. It may be unforgiveness where we felt we were so right, but you're saying to our hearts I want you to forgive anyway oh Lord pride is such an evil thing you don't want that in our lives nor lust nor secret relationships you don't want us to be in deception and lies or stealing or to have addictions that maybe no one else knows about. But Lord, you do. If you're here today and you sense God is speaking to you to be fully obedient in some area, if, if he has spoken to your heart today, I'd like you to just, just hold out your hand. 
You don't even have to raise it high. I just want you to respond in some way. And I want you to know that the most important day is today. Whatever he's told you to do, do it now and do it quickly. Don't rationalize it away and don't wait. And if you do, do what God says to do. If you obey his voice, you're going to experience freedom and joy and peace like you have not experienced in a very long time. In Jesus' name.